This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. Your life, in many ways, is a series of memories. When you look back at your life and you think about your life, the history of your life, and you, you scan that, you don't remember every single moment. There are highlights and there are low times. We remember the good and we remember the painful. And how we remember our lives and those things that we've experienced and walked through in life helps shape who we are, how we think, how we process life, how we view people, even how we view God. It's memories. It's what we hold on to. I remember the very first time that I saw her. I was 15 years old and I was invited to a party where she was going to be. Her family was moving to Texas where I grew up. And I, I walked through the family room and in this home and there was a little hallway that went back to a sunroom and she came walking through it and I've never gotten over it. I, when I saw her, I heard... I heard angels sing and Van Halen at the same time. I, I don't know how that happened. I dated myself a little bit there, but it, it's incredible. It, this September, we will celebrate 34 years of being married. And I'm grateful to God that I not only have that memory, but many more since then. But it's so easy to go back in our minds to those moments. And when you think about the memories the good and the bad, there's a rush of emotions that you feel that in some ways take you back to that moment. And if it was good, it's a great feeling. If it was painful, it's strange how that pain comes back. Those memories, the big ones and the little ones. You remember where you were if you're old enough when you heard the news of what was happening with 9-11. I was in a hospital and just visited someone that had surgery, was making my way out, and as I would pass different lobbies, there were gatherings of people around the TV sets, and I didn't know why. I was trying to just get back to the office, and by the time I got to the car, Angie was calling me to tell, him, tell me what was happening. I, I remember exactly where I was. You remember the birth of a child and the excitement in that moment and all that you feel. You, you remember the first time you rode a roller coaster, the first time you got on a horse. There, there are memories that we carry with us. And some of those memories fade. They were a moment in time and they pass. And there's a good feeling attached or a bad feeling attached. But a lot of the memories, like the one where I saw Angie for the very first time, some of those memories are moments that create a momentum in our lives that changes forever. It's Easter. It's what happened to that first group of people on that first Easter. And the memory, the moment that created a momentum was so profound that we're here today because of what they experienced 2,000 years ago. It was Passover. Everybody that was Jewish wanted to be in Jerusalem for Passover. In fact, it's the only time of the year, only time it ever happened, where Jerusalem would be the population 20 times greater than normal at Passover. Outside the city walls, as far as the eye could see, in the evenings there, the flickering uh, glances of fires in front of tents of people just camping because they wanted to be in Jerusalem for Passover. And I think, I can't prove it, but I think around a lot of those fires at night after the kids had gone to bed, moms and dads and friends would talk about, is he coming? 
will he show up? Will he have the audacity to come to Jerusalem? Because for Jesus, there was already a price on his head. The religious leaders wanted him taken out. They wanted him erased. And so is he going to come to Jerusalem for Passover under that kind of threat? This is the last place he'd want to be. This is the least safe place he could be. But we read in the Gospels, this morning in particular in Mark, the Bible, by the way, is divided into two sections, Old Testament before Jesus, New Testament, the birth and the life of Christ, and then the launching of the church, and from then on. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books, we call them books, but they're way better than books. They're actually ancient documents, inspired by God, the active living Word of God. The unique thing about the Bible is, as I read it, it reads me. It is a living Word fully from God, written through human authors, but inspired by God. And so in the Gospel of Mark, we read these words, Mark chapter 11. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus, if you're familiar with the story, is going to be riding in on a, on a colt, a borrowed colt. He sent some of his disciples into town and said, hey, you're going to see a colt tied up. Grab that. I'm going to ride in town on it. First carjacking in history. Jesus grabs the colt. He's riding in. And as he's riding in, the crowds are coming, they're forming on both sides, and as a sign of honor, out of reverence for him and honor and excitement, they're laying these palm branches down. Now, why palm branches? Well, remember, the city is at 20 times its capacity. People are making shelters because they want to stay there, and so they're using palm branches because you know palm branches will wick away the water. They're light to carry. They're easy to build with. I mean, if you've ever watched Naked and Afraid, we're in church, Survivor, if you've ever watched that, or naked and afraid, if you're from Texas, you know palm branches make a great shelter. And so they're laying those down, and Jesus is riding in on this donkey. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. A very specific and very unique word. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Why would they attach this to David? Because when David was king, it was the last time they were free. It's been over 1,000 years. They've been under the reign of the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Roman Empire. They are under the oppression. They are not a free people. It's been over 1,000 years. And so they're saying, hey, we think Jesus is the Messiah. He's coming in. He's going to usher in a new government in Israel. He's going to punch Rome in the throat, get rid of them, and we're going to be free again. First time since David. And they're shouting, Hosanna. In the original language, the word Hosanna means to save or to help now. So they're literally shouting, save us now. Help us now. Rescue us now. Mark chapter 11, the Word of God tells us Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. Now that's fascinating to me. This is where the religious leaders slept during Passover. He's going right up into the house of the people who've already determined to kill him and take him out. As he goes into the temple courts with the massive columns and the, the stone on the floor, I'm sure the chants of Hosanna were bouncing from the columns and the floor all around. It's an overwhelming moment, and the excitement, the electricity in the air had to be unmatched and unlike anything anyone had ever experienced. And then notice what Scripture says. He looked around at everything. 
he goes into their house. The, the pinnacle point of the people who hated him the most. He goes into their house and he looked around at everything. I think as if to say, I'm here. I'm not hiding. I'm not afraid of you. The way that you oppress people. The way your religion chokes the life out of people. The way you live in a way where there are good and bad and you think you're good and you look down your noses at every single person. The way there's a hierarchy in society. The way you judge people. The way you're unkind to people. The way you treat women less than animals. I'm here and I'm not afraid of you. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Part of what's interesting to me about Jesus is, is as you look at the New Testament, those four Gospels, almost everywhere he was, crowds showed up. He was not unfamiliar with crowds. He was used to crowds. People were coming to hear what he had to teach. People were coming to see what he was going to do. They had all heard about the miracles. They heard he walked on water one time. Then there was an occasion with Lazarus. He'd been dead a few days and Jesus brings him back to life. And then the first miracle, everybody's favorite, water to wine. Everybody's favorite. They'd heard what he'd done. And so crowds would show up wherever he went. But many of them showed up out of desperation. They needed something that nothing else had been able to do for them. They needed healing. Physically. Healing. Emotionally. Healing of relationships. They hoped that they could find hope in Him. And this day was not any different. Massive crowds. Tens of thousands of people. But what's interesting about the crowds around Jesus on that day, and every crowd that was ever in front of Him, and even the crowds that will show up for Easter gatherings this weekend all around the globe. What's interesting about crowds, there are always crowds in the crowd. There's always different crowds. On that day, the first crowd was the crowd that was thinking, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? What do I get out of this? I've heard about Jesus. I've heard about all he's able to do. And I want him with me. He, I want Jesus to be my ride or die. If I'm in desperation, if I need some help, there's something I need to man. I, I want the whole Jesus thing. I want that in my life. It's about what I get out of it. There's some things I need him to do for me. And if you happen today to be in that crowd and that is your thinking and your approach to God, you're going to be very frustrated and very disappointed with God. They thought he was coming in to usher in a new kingdom. They thought he was going to bring geographical and national freedom. They did not understand that the freedom that he would bring would be much more than in just one specific location. For one specific people in one time. I, I want to be blessed. I want to be rescued. As long as he does something for me. That was their mentality in this particular crowd in the crowd. They think about religion. The way they think about a gym membership. A gym membership, it's the... First month of the year, so you get a membership and nobody goes the first week because you know it's going to be slammed. You wait till the second week and you go about three times. You fade off toward the end of January. February, the week before Valentine's, you're going every day because you're looking for a supernatural transformation before February 14th. Then you get to March. 
March is spring break. It's only a week long, but let's take the month off. Why not? Then there's April, and April's got Easter, and May's got Mother's Day. Whew, life's too busy. And then summer, you got a vacation, and you get all the way to the end of the year, and you've got the membership, but you only went to the gym eight or nine times that year. If that's you, do you blame the gym for how you look? These are the people. What do I get out of it? These are the people that have the membership, but they don't take advantage of all the benefits they could experience. They don't consistently go. They don't understand that it's not about just showing up for the event. Events do nothing for you. They're just a moment that fades unless it does something after that moment that creates a momentum in your life. It's about doing something with what we say we believe. And that first Easter crowd, the first crowd in that crowd didn't get it. Jesus did not die on the cross to be our Santa Claus, and He doesn't exist to fulfill every wish and demand we have instantaneously. The first crowd, what do I get out of it? The first crowd wants God to bless their lives, not change their lives. I want you to do for me what I need you to do, but I, I'm, I'm going to be in charge of everything else about my life. But here's the problem. Jesus did not come primarily to bless us. He came to save us. And so maybe you've been there. Some of you today, maybe, maybe you're not a Christ follower. Somebody invited you so you came because it's Easter and we're thrilled that you're here. But maybe, maybe there was a time in your life where there was somebody that you cared about deeply. And you began to pray because you know the Bible says we're supposed to pray. Somebody in your family said, hey, you should probably pray. You have a grandma or a grandfather that prays a lot, and you, you thought, man, I, I know I need to pray. And so you beg God, you ask God, you even bargain with God. God, if you would just do this, I won't ask you for anything else. But the person you were caring about and the person you were caring for and the person you were hurting for, your prayers didn't seem to do anything. And so you would say, you know what, I'm here, but I tried the whole Jesus thing. I tried... I tried faith. You're like, you're like this first crowd. There was something I wanted out of it, but it didn't happen. Because it's interesting, the people that are chanting Hosanna in just four days are chanting crucify him. Because he's not doing what I thought he was supposed to do. He's not doing what I need him to do. He's not bringing in freedom to our nation. He's not ushering in the new kingdom right now the way we think it's supposed to happen. I tried it. It didn't work. Edward Murrow has written a book called Why, <laughs> Why Men Hate Church. Surveyed over a thousand men. And the most common response, the number one reason that men hate church was this. They had been to one. Some of you, that's your story. Why, why would I dive into something where I'm going to listen to somebody beat me up during a message and people around me are going to look down on me in judgment. I've got enough problems in my life. I've got enough struggles. I tried the whole Jesus thing. I tried the whole faith thing. It didn't work for me. I'm here and hopefully I can get something I can take away from this, but I've, I've tried this. It just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. I, I've experienced the way it fails because people still get sick. Divorce still happens. Tumors still grow. Betrayal's still painful. Why would I waste any more time giving Jesus a chance when he had a chance and he didn't come through for me? 
Hey, if that's how you think, can I just say I completely understand that perspective. I get it. But what if a shift in perspective could change everything? What if Jesus is not something you try, but someone you trust? What if, not, what if it's not about a moment where I need something, and I do need something from God, and it is real, and it is valid, but, but what if I begin to recognize God has a bigger, much broader perspective than I do? He has an eternal perspective, and at some point, I've got to come to terms with the fact and the reality that my mind is way too small to comprehend who God is and how He works. And frankly, I'm grateful that God is far too big for me to figure Him out. I'm grateful that God is not so small I can figure out why He does what He does. This crowd goes from chanting, Save us now, to crucify Him. Because He didn't fulfill their agenda. They go from bless my life to crucify Him. I've cheered for him before, but he didn't come through. That's the first crowd. Another crowd in the crowd that day and in every crowd around Jesus was the I know more than God crowd. Now, we would never say it like that. I mean, it's almost scary to say I know more than God. We, we wouldn't say it like that. But have you ever thought about why did they actually kill Jesus? Did they kill him because he was the kindest person who'd ever lived? Is that why they killed him? Did they kill him because he showed us how to forgive and then told us we were to follow that example? Because the world could use a little more forgiveness? Is that why they killed him? Did they kill him because he was nice to people that nobody else was nice to? Why, why did they kill Jesus? Did they kill him because he showed us a living example of how to live in peace and still live with your convictions and live with truth and confront with love? but live in peace? No. They killed him because of what happened in court. The Word of God tells us again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And two words are why they killed him. I am. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. I am. I am the Son of the Living God. And I meet a lot of people that say, you know what? I just can't buy that God would send his son to earth. I just can't buy the whole Jesus is the son of God thing. I think he was a good teacher. I think he lived life and taught us some good principles. I think he was a good example. <laughs> Hang on, Jethro. Have you ever thought about this? If Jesus is not the son of God, then he's a liar. That means he's not a good person or a good teacher. He can't be both. He was either who he says he was, or he was nothing. Don't call him a good teacher if he's a liar. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist and said, prophesy. You're blindfolded. Who hit you? Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. There are always some people in the crowd that think, I know more than God. And we don't say it like that. We say it like this. Hey, I know who God is, and that's not God. I know enough about God that I can decide what He's like. And really what it comes down to is what I'm comfortable with God being is what I can accept Him as. But if it's anything more, I'm not sure about it. I know enough about God to make up my own Jesus. Because for this crowd, Jesus doesn't care about how I live my life. 
Jesus doesn't care about what relationships I have as long as I'm happy. Jesus doesn't care about my finances and what I invest in. Jesus doesn't care about how I treat other people because in fact, for this crowd, I'm smarter than God. I'm right about who I vote for. I'm right about what I think. I'm right in my beliefs and everybody else that's wrong, I don't have to be nice to and I don't think God does either. And my Jesus, my Jesus wouldn't send anybody to hell. That's just not who Jesus is. My Jesus is going to make sure we're, we're all fine no matter what we believe or what we do. I'm smarter than God, so I'll create my own Jesus. Here's the problem with that. Have you ever been wrong about anything? Like, do you, do you have a history you can look back on where you can trust yourself to always be right? Because the only thing that has stood true throughout the ages, the only thing that's never been proven wrong at any point, is the Word of God. And the Word of God gets to define who Jesus is, not us. But for some people, I'll figure out my own Jesus. What's interesting is, this second crowd, I'm smarter than God, picks and chooses what they believe about God. And anything that would be convicting, anything that would cause me to have to change my thinking or my habits or my life or my perspective, I quickly dismiss as not being God. And for those in the second crowd, they're left with a false sense of spirituality. And in our culture today, a lot of people chase spirituality more than they chase Jesus. I, I don't know about the whole Jesus thing, I'm just spiritual. What the fat does that mean? Aren't we all? I mean, we, we're all spiritual beings. I mean, what, what does that mean? It sounds so good, but just like many other things being said in our culture today, it sounds good, but there's no meat to it. There's no reality to it. It's all fluff. It has no deeper meaning. See, this crowd, the second crowd, forgets that it was Jesus himself who said, you know you love me if you obey me. First crowd, what do I get out of this? Second crowd, I know more than God. Third crowd, I love the third crowd. Third crowd, cool story, see you next year. Maybe twice a year, we call them Christers, Christmas and Easter, I'll see you. I know enough to show up for the holiday. It's Easter. Somebody invited me. Great show. I might check it out again next year. See ya. Now think with me about this. Jerusalem is over 20 times its normal size. Tens of thousands of people screaming, save now, rescue us as Jesus is riding in. Electricity in the air. Our team's going to win. It's our moment. It's our time. Tens of thousands of people. And a few hours later, when Jesus is standing in front of Pilate on trial, less than 200 people. I'll be there for the show, but not the real life. They wanted Jesus to do something for them, but they wouldn't do anything for Jesus. They didn't even show up to argue for or against him. Jesus will ride into their Passover and carry a cross out of it and rise from the dead three days later. And most people will be completely unaffected and unchanged. It's the third crowd. Cool story. See you next year. To me, one of the scariest things about God, just to me, my opinion, one of the scariest things about God is Jesus will let you come into the holiday and walk out of the holiday the exact same person. He will allow us to refuse to allow our lives to be changed even though we're in the place and the space where it can happen. Even though life change can be happening all around us. He doesn't force himself. And in Mark chapter 11, a majority of the people that came and went didn't even make the Bible. 
What happened at Easter had no impact on their Tuesday. What happened at Easter did not enhance their marriage. What happened at Easter did not improve their parenting. What took place at Easter did not relieve their financial stress. It did not show them how to have relationships in a more connected and healthy way. What happened at Easter was just a moment that faded and it's gone. Cool story. See you next year. So can I ask you, and really you owe it to yourself to ask yourself, are you in one of those three crowds? There's a fourth crowd. It's the last crowd. The fourth crowd in the crowd was, I'm in. I'll follow Jesus. After the resurrection, Mark chapter 16, the Bible says, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons. Different story, different message. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them. For their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, words of Jesus, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And, and not, not the Jesus that I create in my mind and want him to be, not the Jesus that you create and want him to be, but real Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And in reality, it's the only thing that's going to matter a hundred years from now is what you do with Jesus. It's all that will matter. See, every single thing we believe as followers of Christ, all of our faith hangs on this one event, the resurrection. Without it, it's meaningless. The Bible tells us that the the stone was rolled away from the tomb the morning of the resurrection. Why was the stone rolled away from the tomb? It was, it was not that Jesus was locked up inside and just couldn't get out knocking on the door. This is the guy that would walk through the wall shortly after this into the room where his disciples were. This is the guy that's going to ascend back to the Father in heaven. The stone was not rolled so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. The stone was rolled away so that we could see into the tomb that it's actually empty. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, you've never given your life to Jesus, I, I want you to know just two or three things. One, I am, we are thrilled that you're here. You're welcome here. Two, I've got to be honest. I've been praying specifically for you. And in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ. But three, even if you decide not to do that, you're welcome here. You owe it to yourself not to let this just be a moment that fades away, but to let it be a moment that builds a momentum in your life of something brand new and creates a memory that you will hold on and cherish forever. Because it's all that will matter a hundred years from now. If you've never given your life to Christ, it's been over 2,000 years. How much more do you need? We can't get his death off of our calendar. We still decorate trees and buy mangers. 
He split time, the only one to ever do that. And every time you look at your phone and I look at mine, you look at your computer, your device, every time it screams Jesus, 2023. 2023 years of what since Jesus? Only one person has ever done that. Who else has changed time and marked history like this? And what's interesting about Jesus, we all use his name. Some people call him Savior. Some people use it to cuss. He's the only one that's done with it. No, nobody stubs their toe and says, oh, Buddha. No, nobody does that. <laughs> nobody gets in an accident and says, oh, Allah. No, nobody does that. We all use the name of Jesus. It's just how you use it. And how you use it really determines the condition of your heart and what you think about it. And how you use it determines where you'll be in 100 years. Do you really think, listen, listen. Do you really think God would send his only son to die a cruel death, shed his blood, and be murdered on a cross for your sin and for mine, so that we could connect with God in a personal way. Do you really think God would allow that to happen if there was any other way to know Him? We only pray effectively by one name, and we only cuss by one name. About a month after the resurrection, a group of about 120 people are gathered. That's it. And that 120 people has turned into us today all over the world. Jesus' closest followers would give their lives ultimately. Not for what they believed. People do that all the time. They gave their lives for what they saw. A man who said, I'm going to die. And then after that, I'm going to raise from the dead and I'm going to defeat death. And I'm going to make it possible for you to know God in a personal way. And so millions of people have just decided if someone can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, we just believe them. There's power in something that happened 2,023 years ago. But do you know that power? It's a unique power. What more do you need? Or the better question, the better question is, what and how much are you missing when you don't know him and don't follow him. See, all four crowds in the crowd, all four crowds believed they were good with God, but he's only good with one of them. And the scariest thing we know about God is he'll let you walk into Easter and walk out of it being unchanged. How many of you, I wonder, you've been to an Easter service before? Maybe you're not a Christ follower. But somebody invited you. Maybe you grew up in church. You've, you've been before. How many Easter services have you been to that you walked in and you walked out unchanged? You, you've heard all this. Like, I don't have a new ending for Easter this year. Same ending. And so it's just a moment. It's a, it's a blip in the story of your life. And it doesn't really impact anything at all. A few weeks ago, an amazing family in this church gave me this football. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that I love everything Dallas Cowboys, except they can't seem to get back to the freaking Super Bowl. Everything else, I love. And so this family, this football was signed by Brian Anger, their punter, and, and I, I, I love it. Like, I cherish this. If you try to take this from me, I'll punch you in the throat. This is precious to me. Anything Dallas Cowboys, I'm all about it. But the reality is this ball... In my hands, I'd like to think I could do some things. I played football in high school in Texas, but it's been a long time. But I was thinking, what if I threw this ball to the sound booth in the back of the room? You're going to need to duck in the back. I'm not even going to try it. 
Because the reality is, this ball in my hands, while it's precious to me, doesn't have a lot of value. But if I were to take this ball and put it in the hands of, whether you like him or not, Tom Brady, this ball's value goes way up. Your life is too precious for you to try to keep it in your own hands, and it will never be the value that it could be. If you don't place it in God's hands. And some of you, you're you're holding on to your life and you fumble a lot. You create a lot of penalties that your team, your family, the people you love the most pay for. You're trying to figure it out. You don't always call the right plays. You're stubborn and you're bullheaded. And you think one day you're just going to wake up and it's all going to be different and it won't. And the Bible teaches that God loves you so much. He sent His only Son to die just for you. Because you sin and I sin and none of us are perfect. And He offers this free gift. We call it salvation. Where He says, just put your life in my hands. And I'll forgive your sin. I'll cleanse you. I'll give you a home in heaven after this life. And I'll give you my spirit to live inside you and help you live your purpose in life. And you will never be the person you could be. You'll never have the life you want to have. Even if it's good, it won't be great. It won't be what it could be. You'll never be the man or the woman, the husband, the wife, the father, the mother. You'll never be the person you want to be if you keep your life in your hands. And we only get one shot at this. So I can't think of one reason, not one good reason, to not give your life to Jesus today if you've never done that. The one who can actually elevate your life and help you finally win in life. Would you pray with me this morning? Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you'd like to give your life to Jesus, there's something inside you. You hear my voice, but deep inside you there's something louder saying, that's what you need. I need this. I need to take this step. I don't know everything that it means, but I need this. I want to encourage you to pray this very simple prayer if you'd like to give your life to Christ today. And have Jesus forgive your sin, give you a home in heaven after this life, and give you a spirit to live inside you, and you begin to finally discover and learn to live your purpose. If you'd like to do that, you can pray this prayer. You can pray it out loud, or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus knows even our thoughts. You just pray, dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. As best I know how, I I turn from my sin and I turn to you and I commit my life to you. Please forgive my sin. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you just prayed that prayer, we would love to know it. You can text your name to 407-487-8311 and Pastor Byron will be praying for you this week. And also, we want to thank you for your faithful generosity. You can go to giveC3.cc or you can text C3 Orlando to 77977. Thank you so much for how you give. And if you are in Central Florida, please join us in person at our campus at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Have a great week.